Father, as Chantal has just prayed, we ask that you might speak to us through your word, that we might humble ourselves before you and treasure you in and through the Lord Jesus, for we pray in his name. Amen. So after a long and fairly relentless journey through the first 10 chapters of Hosea, finally in chapter 11, there's a change of gear and a change of mood. After week after week of sin and judgment, at last the prophet's focus switches. Hosea 11 is all about love. After the prophet has poured himself into convicting and persuading and confronting the people of the northern kingdom in the 8th century, after urging them again and again that they need to face themselves and their sin and repent, abruptly and beautifully the prophet's tone shifts. God starts to woo his people. Now, I've got to say that after all these chapters of judgment, I'm a bit rusty on the wooing part. So I thought I'd better look for some help, help from someone who I am assured is the greatest writer the world has ever seen, someone who apparently writes about human emotion with greater insight and more depth and more passionate intensity than anyone living or dead. After an extensive search, I found a website containing the 13 most gorgeous lyrics Taylor Swift has ever written about true love. (laughs) Apparently, some of these are apparently so impossibly beautiful that only Swift could have thought them up. Sadly, we don't have time for all 13, so here are my personal favorites. Now you hang from my lips like the gardens of Babylon with your boots beneath my bed forever is the sweetest con. That's from Cowboy Like Me. Leaves me, leaves me speechless. I tell you the truth but never goodbye. I actually quite like that one. Uh, Uh-oh, I'm falling in love. Oh, no, I'm falling in love again. Oh, I'm falling in love. Thought the plane was going down. How did you turn it around? Great question, okay? (laughs) Industry disruptors and soul deconstructors and smooth-talking hucksters. Like, Like the rhyme there, it's very clever. I'd glad-handing each other and the voices that implore you should be doing more to you. I can admit that I'm just too soft for all of it. Then my personal favorite, you squeeze my hand three times in the back of a taxi. I can tell it's going to be a long road. I'll be there if you're the toast of the time, babe, or if you strike out and you're crawling home. Wow. That's all I can say. And the last one, this is number one. All these people think love's for show, but I would die for you in secret. Oh, I'm just not sure which of her 17 boyfriends she's talking about, but it's a lovely thought. Now, granted, Taylor Swift is a remarkably prolific artist who has managed to capture the imagination and express the emotional angst of a generation. But even Taylor Swift doesn't come close to the depth and passion of Hosea 11, which, to quote David Hubbard, lays bare the intensity of God's covenant love in terms unsurpassed in the Old Testament. You could say this chapter forms the foundation for the expansive, definitive embodiment of the love of God in Christ himself. So this morning, it's less a case 
of bracing ourselves for the onslaught and more a case of relaxing, sitting back and drinking in the rich and tender vision of our God, which the prophet lays before us. Basically, Hosea 1 to 11, 1 to 11 invites us to do six things. Here's the first. Hosea says, delight in the love that pursues us. The opening statement of this passage is both beautifully simple and immensely rich. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The word, the word child here is an affectionate one. It can be used of anyone from about three months through to late teens. It's used of Isaac in Genesis 22 and Samuel when he's at Shiloh with Eli and David in 1 Samuel 17 when Saul's telling him he's far too puny to fight Goliath and Jeremiah when he's pointing out to God that he really is far too young to be a prophet to the nations. But this is the only place it's ever applied to Israel. And even the statement that Israel is God's son is surprisingly rare. Before this in the Old Testament, it's only happened in one place, in Exodus 4, where Yahweh said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, say that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I put in your power. I'll harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. How did Israel become God's son? Well, both in Exodus and then in Hosea, it's because God pursued them. He loved them. He came looking for them. He rescued them. He took hold of them and brought them home. That's what he does for his son in the Old Testament, prodigal or otherwise. You see, our God is the God of relentless pursuit. He's the God who comes to find us, to get us whatever it takes. His great irresistible goal is to come and get us and draw us into our family, to look into our eyes and say, you are mine. And nothing will stop him. The problem, of course, is that we resist. He calls and we run away like a stubborn little kid who thinks that if he pretends he hasn't heard the voice of his mom, he can play for a while longer without any consequences. Hosea writes in verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense offerings to idols. The first phrase of verse 2 is tricky to translate. It may be a passive, they were called, or it may be, the more they called, referring to the prophets like Hosea. But however you translate the first clause, the second is clear. The more they went away, plunging deeper and deeper into idolatry. Now, at this stage, what really should happen is that Israel, the rebellious son, should be punished. This is Deuteronomy 21 makes it quite explicit. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of this city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. 
so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and Israel shall hear and fear. But that's not what happens. Rather than punishing his son, our God relentlessly pursues him. And the glorious truth is that we can't outrun God. For it actually turns out that fleeing God is a complete waste of time. In 1890, an Englishman called Francis Thompson captured this in the opening section of an epic 182-line poem called The Hound of Heaven. Here's how he described his journey. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running, under running laughter, upvisted hopes I sped and shot precipitated down titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat. And a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrays me. God pursues us. He finds us. (laughs) So knowing that this is what our God is like, knowing that he's passionately pursuing us, surely we should stop and turn around and delight in the unfathomable love which drives the God of the universe to seek out you and me. Now, of course, the way in which God pursues us is a little different from the way in which he pursued the family of Jacob in Egypt, freeing them to worship him rather than Pharaoh. When Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1 in chapter 2 of his gospel, he makes it really clear that Jesus' infant experience of an Egyptian rescue, this time escaping Herod's clutches, identifies Jesus as the one who instigates the new exodus, who will bring about a new covenant, who will bring about a new rescue, who will enable us to enjoy a new relationship with God. He is the son who enables us to become sons. Now, this is, incidentally, is why there is some value in retaining the language of sons when it's deliberately chosen by the New Testament writers. It's not just a sort of generic family image. It echoes the fact that Israel was God's son. And as God brings us through a new exodus, he elevates all of us to the position of son. So Romans 8, 14, Paul says, you who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but this new exodus enables us to receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, Paul's then quick to underline that he's not actually talking about gender. Verse 16, he adds, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. (laughs) But to be a child of God actually means that everybody gets to enjoy the status of sons. He actually does the same thing in Galatians. 
Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian of the law. For in Christ Jesus, he says, you are all sons of God through faith. He then goes on in verse 28 to say, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. But we don't just get to be children of God. We all get to sit in the privilege of response, the position of responsibility and privilege. We all get to be sons. There's no gender, no hierarchy, no ethnicity, but we're all sons. As the Apostle John writes, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, for that is what we are. So right now, this week, this morning, Are you delighting in the fact that the God of the universe has pursued you and made you his son? Jim Packer in Knowing God, which I think is probably the book which had a greater impact on me than any other, writes this. You sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as the revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls our worship and prayers and our whole outlook on life, it means we don't understand Christianity very well at all. This morning, brothers and sisters, let's delight in the love that pursues us and brings us home to the Father. And then let's marvel at the love which nurtures us. Look at the picture that God paints for us in 11 verse 3. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms and they didn't know that I healed them. Now the language that Hosea uses here again contains subtle but definite allusions to the exodus. The verb to walk here is a very unusual form. It's a tefal, if you're interested, of a very unusual verb. Now, this verb elsewhere carries the sense of spying. But here it clearly means walking. But teaching them to walk seems to carry echoes of enabling the spies to walk into the land. The word for healing is another uniquely Exodus word, this time drawn straight from Exodus 15 where God made for them a statute and a rule and tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of God and do what's right in his eyes, give ear to his commandments, keep all the statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh, your healer. The picture is that God hasn't just sought us out in his love. His love is expressed in all kinds of ways, teaching us to walk, to walk in the ways that he has opened up before us, to to heal us, to patiently, gently, carefully nurture us. Teaching a child to walk is an extremely intimate thing. I'm not sure if you've noticed, it's also not very quick. It makes helping a teenager get their hundred hours look like a cakewalk. There's a lot of holding and wobbling and catching and picking up and drying tears involved. And it's also one of those things for which you get no thanks at all. 
Not one of my three clearly deeply ungrateful daughters ever said to me, Dad, I want to thank you for your part in helping me learn to walk. Never. Suspect they've never even thought about it. Israel, it seems, had a similar disregard for the patient investment of their father. He knew they didn't even think about the fact that he'd healed them, setting them free. Which is why God keeps reminding them of all the care that he had lavished on them to nurture them. I'm not sure we're all that good at marveling at the love which has nurtured and is nurturing us. In fact, I don't think we're all that good at even recognizing it when it happens. I do love the start of Paul's second letter to Timothy. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to find and to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-controlled. Timothy heard the gospel from his mom and his granny. His testimony looks fairly unspectacular. But Paul says, remember, it's real. The Spirit has been poured out on you. You're a gospel worker. And remember that the nurturing Spirit of God brings power and love and self-control in the middle of the real-time details of pastoring the church in Ephesus. Much of the time, God's nurturing work in our lives is slow, almost, almost unnoticeable. But it's real nonetheless as he teaches us to walk. (laughs) Slowly. So slowly. But tenderly and persistently for our good and his glory. So that we should marvel at the way in which he nourishes as well as delighting in the love that pursues us. And there's a third thing in verse 4. We're to bask in the love that cherishes us. If the picture in verse 3 is pretty intimate, then I think verse 4 ratchets things up another notch. Now, initially, it's a picture of Yahweh gently leading his people. The cords of kindness are literally the cords of Adam, which I suspect may even hint that God is leading us into the kind of intimacy that our first father had in the garden. The loving ropes did the same job. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. And then this. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Now, one of two things is going on here. Either A, the image has just shifted from children to cattle, and he's talking about being really kind to cows as a picture of the way he treats us. Or the verse should be translated as something like, I became for them as those who lift a toddler against their cheeks. It's because the word for yoke and the word for toddler are are very similar. Now, I actually think it's the latter. This is a picture of the God of all power picking us up in his arms and pressing us to his cheek. He stoops down to care for us, to feed us. 
And he tells us this to call us to bask in the love that cherishes us. I think one of the things many of us struggle with slightly is the effective component of the Christian life. Truth we get. We pour ourselves into studying God's word, applying ourselves to words and sentences and paragraphs and books through which God has revealed himself. We think hard about how the ideas and concepts of those words fit together and are worked out across time and space. All that we get. But how is all that supposed to affect us? How are we supposed to feel, to react, to respond? And that's trickier. But I think it's why this chapter is so very helpful. We're supposed to sit with this truth. Let it soak in. Bask in it. Until it penetrates our hearts and minds, until we're gripped and moved by it. But for that to happen, we need to slow down. We need time, lots of time, good, dedicated, focused, uninterrupted time to mull over and meditate and reflect and reconsider, which isn't easy when the take-home is due tomorrow and we urgently need to work out just exactly who Jesus Christ is and put it in 750 words. There's no shortcut to being mastered and softened and moved by the truth of the text so that we might love. John Owen in the 17th century said this in his classic book on communion with God. Many saints have no greater burden in their lives than that their hearts do not constantly rejoice and delight in God. There's still a resistance to walking close with God. But the more we see of God, so much more shall we delight in him. And all we learn of God will only frighten us away from him if we don't see him as loving and merciful to us. But if your heart is taken up with the Father's love, it cannot help but choose to be overpowered, conquered, and embraced by him. If the love of a father will not make a child delight in him, what will? So do this. Set your thoughts on the eternal love of the father and see if your heart is not aroused to delight in him. Sit down for a while at this delightful spring of living water and you will soon find its stream sweet and delightful. You who used to run from God will not now be able even for a second to keep at any distance from him. So bask in the love that cherishes us and then verses 5 and 6, submit to the love that disciplines us. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. Now, I've got to say, like most of this passage, the translation of the opening phrase of verse 5 is tricky. But I can say with absolute confidence that it either means they shall not return to the land of Egypt or they shall return to the land of Egypt. Now, the confusion arises because of a little Hebrew particle, lo, which means either not or surely. 
If it means not, then the point is that their attempts to send diplomatic envoys to enlist the Egyptians to fight on on their behalf against the advancing Assyrian hordes is going to fail. They're not going down to Egypt for help. If it means surely, then it describes that their perverse insistence on relying on anyone or anything other than God is not going to work out. If you press me, I think it says you're probably not going to return to Egypt, or possibly will. But either way, it's crystal clear what is going to happen. Assyria will be their king because they have refused to literally return, repent, the favorite of all prophetic words. Now, because of that, because the Assyrians are coming, the future does not look bright The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, devour them because of their own counsels. The Assyrians are coming, and their insistence on trusting themselves will end spectacularly badly. Their proud cities will crumble. Their security systems will be quickly breached. Or alternatively, their oracular priests will be destroyed. Take your pick. And their grand strategies, their councils will be exposed as hot air. What do they need to do? Well, the fierce love, which has been front and center in this chapter, the love that pursues and cherishes and nurtures now turns out to be the love that disciplines, to which the people of Israel must now submit. One of the problems about being loved really loved, I mean, is that there's something uncontrollable about it. Love that genuinely seeks our interests. Love that is willing to push for our good, come what may. Love that will tell us the truth but never say goodbye. Love that stubbornly, persistently, selflessly acts for our good, does so even when we really like it to stop. Love is love even when we don't want it to be. It's love to which we must actually submit as it acts for our good. It's a disciplining love when it comes from God. And what I think is one of the most important passages in all of the New Testament when it comes to understanding the shape of our lives from day to day and keeping going with the Lord Jesus for a lifetime, the writer to the Hebrews says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline in which we've all participated, you're illegitimate children and not sons. We all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a short time. But our God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But it leads to the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who've been trained by it. So lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet right through discipline so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. We need to submit to the love that disciplines us. 
See, the posture of loving faith in our Father is one that is absolutely convinced of his good and positive purposes in our lives. It's one that knows that in everything that will or could happen to us today, God has already said, I will take that and use it for your good. The pain, the injustice, the frustration, the hurt, the sadness, the annoyance, every strand, every grain, every moment of it will be used by God to train and shape us. And that means we really should stop moaning. Just take a moment to reflect on the things you've complained about over the past 24 hours. I don't know about you, but I was actually quite impressed at how long my list was. I won't bore you with the details or the names. You never know, you might have made it onto the list. I, I, I will ever tell you it's a terribly ungodly list because it betrays not faith but unfaith. So like me, you may need to submit to the fatherly love which disciplines us day by day in all the details of life. Which brings us to number five and verses seven to nine. Gasp at the love that holds us. Hosea continues, my people are bent on turning away from me. Though they call out to the most high, he shall not raise them up at all. Turning away here is a form of the usual word for repentance. But here it's like an anti-repentance. Turning away from Yahweh instead of returning to him. Now, just for a change, there's a slight translation issue here. The Hebrew just reads, to the upwards they call out, which is why I'm not sure the most high is all that helpful. I think they're calling out to Baal, not God. And it's what makes what God says next through the prophets so astounding. They're not even calling out to God. They're calling out to a false God who can't answer. And God says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. It's the only place in the chapter where God addresses his people in a sustained way. And he speaks in a way which is moving and dripping with compassion. Adma and Zeboim are twin cities that suffer the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. They're in Deuteronomy 29 and elsewhere. They're probably underwater today somewhere, the south end of the Dead Sea. But even though the people of Israel in the 8th century were doing a compelling impression of Adma and Zeboim, God says his heart literally overthrows him, using the same word that's used in Genesis to describe God overthrowing the cities themselves. And then do you see that remarkable expression? In the midst of judgment, Yahweh's heart grows warm and tender. God depicts himself to us as one whose love triumphs over judgment. Now, we need to be a little bit careful here as we think of God's heart growing warm and tender. It's not that his heart wasn't warm and tender before. It really was. It's just that it is... In this moment, in the heat of the moment, this covenant love that holds us bursts into view to say in verse 9, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not probably enter into the city once more, city of Samaria. 
Yahweh insists that beyond Assyria, his covenant with Israel somehow remains intact. Like all the prophets, Hosea envisages a future beyond judgment, where the warmth of his love somehow overcomes his wrath. But notice that Hosea doesn't grind this in the fact that God has a change of mind about Israel, Ephraim. In fact, he says the very opposite. He says it's because we're dealing with Yahweh, the one who is both transcendent and imminent, the Holy One who dwells with us. It's because we're dealing with the one who is God and not man that he isn't subject to the same limitations as us. Balaam, of all people, understood this. In Numbers 23, 19, he says, God's not man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. He has said and he'll do it. He has spoken, he'll fulfill it. You see, ultimately, behind this outpouring of divine emotion, if I could put it like this, our hope doesn't rest on God changing his mind about us. In fact, the reverse is true. We can go to sleep at night because we can count on our covenant God because he is utterly, gloriously, immutably consistent. When John Newton was commenting on this verse, he said, if we had offended men or angels as as we've offended our creator and redeemer, and they had permission and power to punish us, our case would be utterly desperate. Only he who made us is able to bear with us. All the attributes of the infinite God, he says, must be equally infinite. As is his majesty, so is his mercy. We're dealing with the God of the universe, the infinite God. And Hosea says, see, he is not like us. This is one of those places where one of the most unexpected doctrines in the Bible pokes its head above the surface. It's the doctrine of the impassibility of God. Here's what Matthew Barrett says about this. The church from the early fathers to the Westminster Confession has always believed that the God of the Bible is a God without passions. That is, he is impassible. In this one word, passions, we see the difference between our God and the gods of Greek mythology and every other god. They're all susceptible to emotional fluctuation. Overcome by a variation in mood, God changed or manipulated by the will of another. One minute they're given to lust, and the next fly off the handle in the fit of rage. But our God is not like that. He's not subject to fluctuating emotional states. Nor can his creation alter him in such a way as to change his actions or make him less. In that light, impassibility ensures that God is love in infinite measure. It guarantees that God's love could never be more infinite in its loveliness. God doesn't depend on others to stimulate or activate or fulfill his love. He says, although it may not seem like it at first, a suffering God is a dangerous idea because it undermines our confidence in times of real hardship. 
For if God is subject to emotional change, how can we know that he'll stay true to his promises? His gospel promises might change with his mood. But this is not our God. For his love is steadfast, his mercy is eternal, and his justice guarantees our future victory. Because our God is God and not man, we can step back and gasp at the God who holds us. And one more thing. Verses 10 and 11, we need to bow before the love that summons us. They shall go after Yahweh, Hosea writes. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return to their homes, declares Yahweh. It's hard to resist talking about Aslan from the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe at this point. In fact, it's actually too hard. Um, Because I suspect that one of Belfast's most famous sons, C.S. Lewis, may well have been inspired by this passage when he wrote the prophecy of the great lion's coming, which gave hope to the creatures of Narnia through the endless winter of the white witch's reign. Here's the prophecy. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, Sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. See, there's nothing anemic or weak about the love of our God. It really is a strong love, a terrifying love, a leonine love which comes with an unmatched blast of intensity because ultimately this love which woos us is also a love which demands that we bow down, silent, overwhelmed, overcome as our God both brings us down to size and lifts us up and brings us home. Home from exile, wherever that is. Home from disobedience. Home from disloyalty. Home to God in Christ. You know, sooner or later, we will all bow low before the love that summons us to come and fall down before the throne of God. For the lion has roared. It really is that simple. With the lion's roar echoing in our ears, hear these words from Philippians 2 that I'm sure you know well. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whatever we do this morning, Let's bow again before the love that summons us, holds us, disciplines us, cherishes us, nurtures us, and woos us. No wonder that the Apostle John writes, anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. That's already on glorious display in Hosea 11. But we know there's even more to come. For in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. 
that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That we might be sons of God. So let's fix our eyes again on the beauty and power and wisdom of God, the God of the covenant, the unchangeable God of unfathomable mercy and wisdom and love, asking him to captivate and soften and strengthen our hearts and minds for today and for a lifetime, well, no, actually, for an eternity of delighting in and serving and loving him. For this is the love of our God. Let's pray together. Loving Father, we ask that in your kindness as we sit here, by your Spirit, you'd enable us to grasp a little more of the love of our God, Father, Son, and Spirit in a way that shapes and strengthens and comforts and thrills us for our good and your glory. Amen. This recording of QTC Chapel is made possible with the support of our generous financial partners. If you have found this podcast helpful and encouraging, would you please consider partnering with us? For details on how to do this, visit www.qtc.edu.au and click on Support QTC.